0: You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. You're about to hear a recording of an event held at the Archive in October 2018. The event was called Politics of Sound, Listening to the Archive, and it was a discussion about the various ways archiving sound can be a political act. Speakers included Natiba Guy-Clements, Special Collections Manager at the Brooklyn Public Library, home of the Civil Rights in Brooklyn Oral History Collection, Daniel Horowitz, oral historian and poet, currently working on a historical memory project based in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Samara Smith, associate professor at SUNY, who documented the sounds of Occupy Wall Street. And Mario Alvarez, one of the creators of Columbia Life Histories, a series of oral history interviews with graduate students at Columbia University. Okay, hi. Um, my name's Louise Barry. I'm a volunteer here at Interference Archive, and I'm going to be moderating this panel. Welcome, everyone. Um, thanks for being here. I'd like to first ask all of you to just describe your work, how your project relates to archives, um, and how <laughs> you use sound.
1: Should I start, or...? Why not? Okay. Um, so, we... So, I started this project in, um, with Benji Delapidre. He's not here, but... Um, we started this a few years ago, um, really in light of the various college protests that occurred in 2015 and in 2016. You know, Yale College, um, Amherst, uh, U Missouri, like several several universities had these protests, um, at the center of which were you know was race. Basically, black students protested on campus, um, really to force the issue and confront administrators to say that we're not welcome here. We don't feel welcome here. Um, we were recruited here on the basis of our race as like a selling point and then once we're here we're kind of cast aside and are subject to to various micro and macro aggressions um, and are basically kind of unheard on campus Um, so Benji and I um, kind of in light of this and and knowing full well that at Columbia University these same issues apply Um, I don't think any university in the world is really exempt from these sort of racial issues Um, we kind of got to work we um, We're both products of the oral history master's program at Columbia. So with this background, we kind of designed this project to interview primarily graduate students of color um, with an oral history, life history approach as a means of assessing the ways that their race or really any sort of diversity marker, be their gender, um, if they're able-bodied or not, um, their geographic origin, you know, a a lot of factors um, to assess like how, how their identity kind of intersects with the university. Both good and bad. Um, We've conducted over fifty interviews uh, at this this point. Um, We're not done archiving. I think all of us know how much work that is to to archive and and collect. You know, metadata is like a huge burden for me Mm -hmm. um, in general. Um, But but we've collected a a number of testimonies that basically kind of confirm what we suspected in the beginning that um, despite all of the great benefits that you know a university like Columbia confers, like there's still these these issues that kind of afflict you and affect your, your work performance, your 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 happiness, your mental well-being, um, and we um, with the uh, the dean of, of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, who's funded our project, we're, we're slowly beginning the process of beginning programming to kind of address these issues. Um, it's an uphill climb; like we're never really going to get to to that juncture. I don't think in my lifetime, but um, slowly but surely, we're kind of kind of working towards that. Kind of lost track of the question there. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: was going to ask it to repeat. Though, so. Yeah, it's a it's a really open ended question, so I don't think you did lose track. <laughs> okay. oh, it's just to describe your work and the project okay. that you're working on. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, I'm
0: happy. <laughs> okay. Hi
2: everyone. So uh, I'm Guy Clement, as as already introduced. I am the manager of special collections at. Uh, BPL's Brooklyn collection and our focus there is to collect anything that we can about Brooklyn. Um, I've only been there about two years, going on two years uh, this year. Um, I've kind of been a lifelong library special collections person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I kind of started working in libraries when I was about 18 years old uh, at the Schomburg Center, which also has like a really huge uh, oral history collection, mostly of a you know, people of African descent, historians, uh, artists, musicians, etc. Um, so at BPL, like I said, we're just we really love Brooklyn, <laughs> and we collect all that we can about them. Um, one of our most used collections is our civil rights uh, in Brooklyn collection, and it consists the oral history component consists of about thirty interviews with members of uh, the Brooklyn Congress on Racial Equality group that were. Mostly active in the 1960s and, and just did a lot of active work fighting discrimination in Brooklyn in so many ways. Um, and you had, what was the last question? You had? Like
0: how, how does your project um, relate to archives and how do you use sound? It's of course very directly <laughs> related. Um, I think for
2: me like my goals as a manager, and I actually wrote them down so I'm just going to read them, um, to make information accessible. Um, collect documents that can tell the story of Brooklyn, uh, to make sure I can document the different voices that tell those stories, and uh, to accurately portray history as it happened and through the lens of of the people that experienced it. So that's kind of my role.
3: That's it for me. Um, So I'm Samara Smith, and um, I guess... I am kind of an accidental archivist. (laughs) Um, uh, My background is in documentary, and most of my work is around um, uh, my background is in documentary film. But for about the last ten years, I've been doing more sound-based and mobile uh, pieces in set in public spaces, and so um, that's what brought me to documenting Occupy Wall Street because I was uh, when uh, the occupation of. Liberty Plaza or Zuccotti Park um, started, I was in the middle of researching a project about Union Square. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the history of the anarchist, communist, and labor movements that had happened there in the 1800s and trying to think about how to create a mobile walking project in that park that would really bring that history alive. And then all of a sudden, this thing started happening that was seemed very related in many ways Mm -hmm. so I ran down with no plan and a recorder (laughs) and um (laughs) and started recording um, and then sort of you know it became sort of that murky like part of the movement recording the movement trying to understand what the movement was becoming and how to uh, record and document in a way that was aligned with the principles Um, so I started Collaborating with folks who are archiving and the archiving working group. Um, and they were primarily working with collecting ephemera at the time. Um, and then there were a few other people interested in um, recording, and we started meeting and talking about doing something, doing oral histories together. So, um, sort of have two different collections that are very related one being the Stuff that I did as ambient recordings and vox pop interviews and on my own with my own process of documentarian, and then the recordings that came out of the collective process of the working group, thinking about how to be aligned with the movement principles and working collaboratively in that way. Um, and so um, a lot of the interesting conversations that came out of that were thinking about you know the guiding principles um, of solidarity from the um, from the uh, for, from the, the the movement created, um, and I think three of the the three of the key ones that we really talked about a lot were engaging in direct and transparent participatory democracy, exercising personal and collective responsibility, and making technologies, knowledge, and culture open to all freely to freely access, create, modify, and distribute, which became really key to our discussions, but also kind of contentious, because then there's also questions about security and privacy and um, legality and stuff in that. So um, we ended up creating a um, working group uh, release form. Um, after we, we asked some people to do some trainings with us about oral history, some folks who had trained at Columbia. Um, one of my colleagues is a historian, gave a, did a, work, a workshop. Um, and I did some audio recording uh, stuff. And then we, out of the, that work and a lot of conversations, we created a um, release form that allowed the participants to choose the level of o- access that they wanted the recordings to be released at. So it went from like um, non-commercial, but fully open creative commons to uh, no derivatives to they could create any restrictions that, that they wanted on it. Um, So that's sort of was an interesting conversation, and I think that, you know, I think out of this conversation I'd love to have explore Mm -hmm. some of those ideas about like how does a movement create document itself within its own values or principles? I think is really interesting, so I'll leave it there.
4: Um, (coughs) I'm Daniel Horowitz. So I've most of my work has been really on one large project in on the Mississippi Gulf Coast focused around um, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, Waveland, Mississippi, and a place called The Kill, um, Mississippi. And, um, and the region around the body of water, the Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Is anybody from there? Good, so you won't. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so I went there two years ago as part of this farming project. And it sort of struck me the different perspectives I heard on the environmental crisis there, which is sort of in the midst of the environmental crisis. I don't know if you know that region, but it's like the BP oil spill. That's where all the oil ended up because of the currents. There's a DuPont factory that makes 84% of all the white paint in the world. And you can only, I mean, you can imagine. Um, and there's drilling and that's where all almost all of the hurricanes that hit the Gulf that affect New Orleans like that's where Katrina made landfall in Waveland, Mississippi so there's people who, who live there and I thought they had a why this started was because I thought that they were in a really unique position in America and sort of in the world where like they're living there nobody's living there by accident and they have a very different perspective on the land and their surroundings. And so I imagined oral history as two things. One, w- as almost a way to organize, or to, because the people there feel very powerless, a lot of them. And it was a way to bring diverse groups together just by having them participate in the same project. And to also do something I think oral history is really good at, which is. To re-establish the people who live there as experts of the environmental crisis, as opposed to like them being them being their narrative sort of being co-opted by like FEMA or different agencies that have also interviewed them. So to ask them to ask them what should be done, like they to establish them just by interviewing them, almost just through the process of oil history, which I think is sort of one of the amazing parts of oil history established them as experts on the crisis. Um, so I ended up conducting over 70 oral history interviews over like a year and a half, and I'm, I'm going back there. Um, and they're all my best friends now, um, and, um, which happens in oral history. Um, and so how it relates to the archive is... Um, I'm creating an archive of this Mm -hmm. work but it also creates everybody people it's a small community I mean everybody knows each other and it's really interesting people want to tell their story but they wouldn't tell it like in public they would never like proletize their story but they would tell it in private to me and then say it can be heard by anybody and I think that's a really powerful thing and that's a rare opportunity that people are given Um, and I also think it sort of documents uh, I mean, it. By all calculations, it will document a place that like won't exist in a certain amount of time, depending on who you ask, um, which is just interesting for many reasons. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thanks. Um, so ne- the next question I'd like to ask all of you is to talk a little bit about how you see your work as political, and um, and Samar, you already touched on this, but how your project. Ha- has a relationship with movement organizing if it does or how how do you see that possibility
1: I mean I, I think the the project is kind of inherently political right like it's um, there's definitely like a pro black consciousness that kind of underrides the the project and I think that was part of the design from the beginning um, and it extends to uh, every facet of the project from you know, you talk about consent and, and these release forms, like, ongoing consent is a major part of our process. So if one of our narrators decides a year from, from now that they don't want their interview in the Columbia Archive, or they want to restrict access, or they want to restrict certain portions of it, um, we're more than happy to do that. Um, you know, We do think there is a loss there, like, in, in restricting that, that testimony, but at the same time, like, really the, the wishes of our narrators is, like, of utmost importance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's funny, I'd I i I'd almost never even thought about the question before being invited for the as to, to how it is political, because I, I just, like, of course it's political, right? Like, it's, like, every part of it is. Um, and as far as um, movement organizing, I don't know if I would frame it as movement, because it's kind of within Columbia as an institution, um, and there are a lot of problems that kind of stem with that, and, and tying yourself with an institution, I think, is kind of a complicated thing. Um, but within that framework, we're definitely kind of pushing administrators to, to not be comfortable um, with their assumptions as to the comfort level of their students or um, you know what they preach as diversity, whether or not that's the case. Um, so and, and, and they've been very, very willing in, in, in allowing us as kind of representatives of our narrators to, to kind of push them and, and kind of compel them to, to really be more proactive as far as welcoming people there. So.
0: Um
2: So, the first question was how how sure, yeah,' <laughs> sorry,
0: um, <laughs> I'll just repeat the question. So, how do you see your project as political? Does your project have a relationship with movement organizing, and if so, how? okay well, um
2: talking about the Brooklyn core um, oral history collection, I mean it's, it's definitely historical, right um, but what? What I appreciate more most about like that co- kind of collection is that people can kind of take a listen and see how these movements panned out right what was the kind of uh activities that they took what types of things that they were fighting um, one of the issues that that came up with Brooklyn Corps and one of their causes and one of the things that they were trying to kind of deal with was a lot of s- school segregation right that was one of their their um one of the things that they were fighting against, they were trying to uh, get um, a family that wanted to change schools that weren't allowed to because they didn't live in the neighborhood. Um, And I think there's some of that happening now, right? In Brooklyn, like they're talking about kind of changing policies for how people can attend schools and there's a lot of uproar around parents who feel like, well, my kids worked really hard and they should get into the school and it shouldn't be open to everyone. So it kind of shows like as much as things change, they kind of stay the same. Um, and that's important. A lot of people probably are not aware that this was something that happened in Brooklyn in the during the 1960s. A lot of people think of school segregation as being in the South and having to have police escorts to bring you into classes when it happened in the North. But it just wasn't as, I guess, you know, as awful, <laughs> even though it still is pretty, pretty awful and still happens today. So. I definitely think, like, looking back and having um, recorded accounts someone telling it in their own words, it's it's really important, and it, it kind of resonates with you more than than just reading it. So, yeah. Um,
3: I'm going to try to do it without the question. I think <laughs> can. Um, so I can. Th- so I think one of the things that I found really interesting in the interviews um, th- was teasing out the roots of many different movements that gave birth to that moment, right? And so the different political histories of participants and the way that earlier uh, political movements and, and tendencies were playing out in that moment. And I think that documenting it, having that conversation more explicitly, hopefully, can then make the next one a little <laughs> further along, <laughs> like, you know, a little more complex, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel, mm-hmm. and we weren't reinventing the wheel. There was a lot of knowledge in that, um, in those working groups in those parks, but it was, you, you know, there were a lot of, of really young people who did who came with less you know with a lot of like creative energy but less knowledge and then the people coming out of like the anti-nuclear movement and anarchist movement and the Lower East Side Squatter movement I mean and the the, you know um, just like all kinds of different movements and so there was that was really interesting to think about um, sort of earlier lessons of history that were you know, informing the co- organizing there, and then how things un- unfolded there, and what we can mm-hmm. learn from that. And so, like, I just like to think about, you know, how all these movements can build on one another, and and how we can learn from history and from each other, and from our political history to like, you know, be more effective, or more, you know, just, or more, you know, <laughs> I don't know, inclusive. I don't. I mean, all these, you know, things in in our political action. So that is is one part. And then I, now I can't remember the second. Part. <laughs> <laughs> well the second part
0: of the question is about the uh the work's relationship to movement organizing which you kind of already
2: so, talked about. Yeah. yeah. I guess, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um well it's hard to say about the political because I, I it's because of the environmental movement. I mean there was a lot of life history I was taking and the political sort of um what I found, which was sort of strange to realize, was people thought it was, I thought it was less political than everybody there thought. So they considered, and probably because they're so rarely asked about it in the way that I was asking about it, like they sort of felt it was very radical um, to speak about like their experience of like Hurricane Katrina in this way that isn't like I'm asking for government aid so in a weird way I guess it's radical because it's not political in that sense like the explicit sense of politics but then it, we would have these larger group story circles they were called which were organized by me and and a friend who who's lived there her whole life um, Jean and um, We would gather at places that used to be of importance or that still are of importance to the community but that are sort of gone and it was very interesting there's this old gas station named drummond's or a service station and it was destroyed in the storm but um people still just brought out lawn chairs and gathered there like there was sort of the social scene of the service station and so we would just Record people sharing stories, or make an event out of it. People sharing stories about the place, and I think it was very political in the sense of like space building and like space holding. Um, and then there were the explicitly political people I interviewed. Like I interviewed a lot of activists, like um, from the NAACP and from the Sierra Club in Mississippi and from the Gulf Restoration Network. And I think that um, that. Like I sort of was mentioning before, just having a network, just interviewing people and saying like, "Oh, I asking them questions." Like I was just talking to the someone in the C- Sierra Club who mentioned this when I'm interviewing the president of the NAACP in in um or the head of the NAACP in Bay St Louis, Mississippi. Just to say something like that, and then they get in touch. Like I don't I don't consider that organizing in like a normal sense. It just sort of it happens because people are talking now. Um, I think I answered. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mo- yeah, movement building is tough because um, because it's 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 pretty. They're pretty beat down. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty. There's slim pickings there.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, So So, um, on that note, uh, the next question I have for all of you is what can we learn from the voices and stories that you're collecting? Um, And how can these collections broaden the range of stories in our collective history? (sighs) (laughs)
2: Sure.
0: Uh, What can we learn from the voices and stories you are collecting and how can these collections broaden the range of stories in our collective history?
1: Man, well we, we conducted such a broad set of interviews that it's, it's, it's almost hard to pinpoint any one thing. Um, I mean I'll, I'll say this for me personally um, every interview brought about some sort of surprise um, on some level um, and, and on kind of a darker note I think people had stories of trauma that you would never expect um, in an interview process. So I mean d- just for me like at one point I think I had six straight interviews that had some sort of story of sexual trauma involved, and it kind of came out, kind of out of nowhere. And it was almost like the the intimate setting of an oral history interview kind of was conducive to to sharing kind of vulnerable testimony like that. Um, so people have stories, man. Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's wild. Even in a privileged setting like Columbia, I think people carry baggage, um, and I think bringing that out um, from any sort of narrator, be they you know, a, a low-income, you know, high school dropout or, a, you know, a Ph.D. student in the astronomy department. I think it, it's, that to me was, was very kind of enlightening. Um, and, and I'm sorry, the, the second half of, of that question. That again?
0: Um, and how can collections broaden the range of stories in our collective history?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think it's an extension of that, right? Like, it, it's, um, it just adds nuance that, that you wouldn't expect. Um, and, and for me, like, I'm, I'm always going to be grateful for, for just being privy to, to those to those narratives. So,
2: oh, so, um, what can we learn? Um, I think, for me, one of the things that's always interesting listening to like, people tell their actual stories is how often it, it differs from what's, like, printed and recorded and said as what happened. Um, I was like going through our Brooklyn Corps collection and one of the one of the interviews that I was reading the transcript for um, talked about it was Oliver Leeds who was uh, the president of Brooklyn Corps and they were in the process of, um, they were protesting, right, at Sony Downstate while they were building because while they were building the building, no one of color was allowed to work there, right? And this is like, Post-war, where they would train a lot of people to do this construction work, but after the war, they didn't allow them to, like, practice anything that they learned. So, of course, they picketed, and they wanted, you know, a change, and they wanted to have people of color hired. Um, And they eventually got to the table, right, where they can, like, make an agreement with the powers that be. (coughs) And the agreement that was made was that they would have a training program, right? And according to Mr. Leeds, like, It was kind of celebrated at first like yeah we got something but really behind the scenes like all of the organizers were pissed right like this this isn't it this isn't what we wanted this isn't what we were fighting for we just want you they don't need training they just need you to hire them and it, it was just so interesting like you know on the in the paper it was announced like, yeah, the strike is over, they have a deal, but in reality everybody, like, apparently there were ministers that were cursing because they were so upset. Um, It was really interesting to, like, read his account and listen to his account of what actually transpired when it, you know, when all was said and done. So I I think like that, you know, ability to have, like, real truth telling is very important Um, and it's it's definitely something that you, you have when people actually get a chance to tell what their actual, actual story is and how can you bro- how can they like oral histories and gen- like broadening the range I think um like I know what BPL for us broadening the range like broadening broadening the range of stories that we have and things that we collect we actually have two other um really great oral history projects that we do one is called our streets our stories where we interview regular Brooklyn people just people who lived in the neighborhood or people who just want to tell a story about you know, what it was like to grow up in Coney Island or Crown Heights or talk about gentrification or anything that they want to talk about that's related to Brooklyn, we give them an opportunity to come in and like, tell that story. And um, similar to your project, we have a oral history pro- program that we're doing for Greenpoint that's kind of documenting all of the past uh, environmental mistakes um, that were made in, in those neighborhoods so I think it's important for us to just continue collecting right and continue getting people's stories and documenting it and, and just having it saved for posterity it's it's important there's always an opportunity for it So,
3: um, I think I'm gonna start with the broadening um, because I think that that it's There's something about I don't know who just said it about the you know I think you said it about people will sit down and have an intimate conversation Mm -hmm. with you who may not amplify their voices in other places, and so if the the process of um, you know soliciting uh, narrators um, is a very political process and uh, you know it's even in a leaderless m- movement, there's leaders, right? There, or there's charismatic people who are mm-hmm. going to step up and f- speak. And so, I, you know, I worked very hard to try to find the people who wouldn't instantly volunteer themselves <laughs> to speak, but to whom, you know, were doing a lot of work on the ground, right? And so I think that's how we broaden, right? To, to say, like, who's not stepping up um, in, you know, uh, in the direct assembly and speaking, but is doing a lot of work and is like really involved in this who has a, has a lot to say you know, and how can we then broaden the representation mm-hmm. and who you know what which voices are less less represented and and how how can the like broadest kind of diversity and complexity of the movement be represented. Now, I'm not saying I did a great job of all those things. Like, that, that was my intention, right? My goal. <laughs> I think I failed at it, probably, because it's really difficult to get that complexity, and, and there's just not enough time in the world. But, um, but, but having that intention is how I think we can broaden, right? And to, like, always be pushing and, and to thinking about, um, about the less heard voices mm-hmm. um, in, in, in the movement and I don't know, did I answer the first part already?
0: I I think so. The first part was what can we learn from the stories in your Mm. collection?
3: So yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it's about sort of that complexity and about, you know, what what the less dominant stories, like you were saying, that, you know, the the narrative becomes more complex. um, And then also I think what I said, The last answer, like in terms of thinking about movements and social, um, social movements and social change, you know, I think we can um, definitely build upon history and 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 learn about um, about things as 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 we move forward. And you know, and and try to like learn and build from the past a lot. So just in general, there's a lot of knowledge out there. You know, (laughs) a lot of.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, similarly, I think. What I found so interesting about these interviews is that it sort of documents the alternative. Like it, it it documents, and what these people spoke about is like how much they love living in, like, Bay St. Louis or Waveland. Like, and I f- it's rare, because you never... I mean, if you Google it, whatever, it's like Hurricane Katrina, landfall, all of these catastrophes. And even, I think I've been here, too. I've been away too long. Like, I started talking like that when I talked about Bay St. Louis. But they love it, and that's why they're there. And it's, it's gorgeous. It's the first nice beach. It's an hour from New Orleans. You can drink in the street in Bay St. Louis. And um, so... They, they love it and they have a really close connection to it. And so it's to get stories of this place that aren't just like the FEMA oral histories or, or not oral histories, the FEMA <laughs> interviews, to get the, the like, this is what life, this is like, they live in this very particular way. And like not and hurricanes aren't new. So just to get this like hurricanes will always and have always hit that region to get this sort of subterranean cultural knowledge. That like only these people have who've have lived there for generations. Of like, there's are people there who like you know talk about like feeling rain and hurricanes in their bones and like you know all these signs. Like the at the the um, seminary, like the sculpture of of the Virgin Mary will like start to to cry when a hurricane's about to come because the the air gets so humid and it's made out of really porous concrete. Um, so there's just like, and you know, the, the birds flying in, um, there's just like this knowledge that like would be lost. Like it's, it's a total, it's like a beautiful oral history, like knowledge. So the kind of thing that, that isn't true necessarily, like in, in the, in the factual sense or the scientific sense, um, but is like part of experience and life. And also, um trying to remember the question um (laughs) the alternative well also this is like a very unique place in that like in the kill in mississippi they didn't get electricity until 1977 like their parents or but their parents maybe but definitely their grandparents like had this totally alternative way of life because of the isolation of the place like they had their own currency on this barrier island people lived there they they didn't use the dollar until like the the 60s um, they had like this own individual economy and and so it's sort of a way of life that is like the way they talk about the world has a very sort of different sense of permanence than you hear it spoken about and of a, a different like a, a sense of alternatives like the fact that they didn't get electricity for 1977 means that like they sort of like their grandparents in other words like lived a life of total subsistence like they lived off the land and um, and like now they live off the Walmart in, in Waveland but they, it's, it's different than other communities because I think they know about the alternative so there's something there I don't know what it is but they talk about that a lot and um, and I think that is it? I think I've entered all the pipes, maybe. Not completely.
0: Uh, Well, I'd like to go back to something uh, you mentioned, Mario, and talk a little about the differences between documenting um, an oral history in the context of an institution like Columbia um, or the Brooklyn Public Library, and what's the difference between that and working independently the way you did?
1: I mean, even if consciously I, I can say it's not affecting my practice, I think I mean, to be real, like, I know where my money's coming from. Like, I, I think there's no separating that from my project and and, and the work I've been doing. Um, and that goes to my narrators as well. Like, they're, they're employees of Columbia University. Like, there are things they might not be comfortable saying on the record or, or admitting on the record. It's affecting whether or not they want their interview to be available. It's, um, it's limiting in its own way. Um, in another way, it's you know, I don't know if we would get the funding to do a Columbia-focused project without Columbia funding the project, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's just one of those things that's, like, kind of inherent to, to the work, um, specifically, like, this work. Um, but I, I can't sit here and say it's not affecting like, the interviews or or, or you know, the recommendations we suggest. You know, like, I'm not admitting everything I feel about Columbia when I'm meeting mm-hmm. with the dean. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it, it's there, there are things, like, it, it limits how honest you can be, um, and that's, maybe that's like a sour note to, to, you know, to bring up, but, but it's, it's true. Like it, it, just, it, it just is. Um, like Within those bounds, we're doing everything we can. Um, but I think if, if we were able to get outside funding, I think it would make the project a lot more... Um, we'd have a lot more freedom to really kind of challenge um, in a much more blunt way, like the issues that, that face a predominantly white institution with... Billions of dollars, like like Columbia.
2: Mm. Mm. Billions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think for for me and, and like being in an institution like that, of course, you know there are rules on top of rules on top of rules. Um, I think as far as the two programs that we have running, I mean, one is grant funded, which gives us a little bit of flexibility. Um, of course. You also have the issue, like, when the money's gone, you won't be able to continue that work. Um, uh, but for me, as someone who, like, is actively trying to collect and document, I think a lot of what affects, um, like, that aspect for me is, you know, kind of gaining trust for people to want to, like, donate Like these collections. Like, if they do, they did do this work and they collected all of these interviews, like, how can I get them to trust me enough to like be the caretaker and steward of that collection right and then of course you know it would be nice to have money (laughs) right because money always helps to be able to compensate people in that way like if I do want to add a collection and you do need it, it, it it would be nice for me to be able to do that but sometimes that's not always the way it works out so
3: Well from the other side having no money <laughs> and no institution um, <laughs> the um, challenges are time and being pulled constantly away from the project because I have other deadlines and I get or I get funding for something else or I have deadlines for something else so this project is always kind of just not getting any attention um, and then um, and my metadata is just a disaster mm-hmm. and um, I have no transcript I mean it's just you know there's so many problems <laughs> with that um, But then the other kind of problem is that they're like the oral history portion of the of the recordings did were born out of this working group that doesn't really exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So who owns Mm -hmm. those and how do decisions get made for that work, you know, and how does one shepherd that into, you know, so I, I wish that that kind of had been deposited with a, with an institution at, but while the group was still working. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, I'm going on sabbatical next year. And so this is on my big to-do list is like try to like pull together as many people as I can reach and like make a decision of, you know, how to, luckily it's digital so I could go to multiple archives. But, you know, there were mm-hmm. a lot of debates about where it ought and how it ought to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I'm making those decisions mm-hmm. solely in myself. But at the same time, the institution of, if it was an institution of which it was born it's hard to access you know it was Mm. a temporal so that's a really complicated movie you can all give me some advice Mm -hmm. (laughs) what to do (laughs) but um that so that's difficult so in some ways like the the stuff that i did independently um i feel more confident because that's the realm that i understand and know you know and i'm trained in and documentarian that i feel like i can How you know that's the relationship that i have with a with the people, the experts, and narrators, and interviewer, or, that I that I talk to, and that's really about you know their consent and 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 what I'm working on f- in that project. But the but the working group stuff I feel is very very murky and confusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, it's it's strange because I also don't really have an institution. But I've sort of been working backwards in like, you know, will the historic New Orleans collection house this work, or yeah. the Hancock County? um historical society um or like will the new school fund me and they won't and i want that on record (laughs) they won't fund me because they think it's too big a project which doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. every little bit obviously helps okay um so but so working in reverse is like a strange feeling though um so I don't know what to say. Yeah. If but you're an institution, <laughs> I'll take your <laughs> money. Yeah.
2: I should also add, like, a lot of a lot of what you mentioned, too. Like, of course, time is always a factor for us, right? Because every archive has a backlog. That's, like, our... Should be our tagline. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so that that's also something that we have to be mindful of, you know, because I don't want to be this jerk to just be, like, this greedy hoarder and take everything and then <laughs> no one gets to access it yeah, for probably. 10 or 20 years, right? So that's also something that we also have to kind of grapple with.
1: Also, just um, just thinking of this now, like, part of our plan was to archive with the Columbia um, mm. libraries, and I'm just thinking out loud, like, I'm, I'm debating whether we should, like, exclusively deposit with mm-hmm. them, just because, like, it's such a foreboding place, and, and to even get to the archives in that institution, it's, like, it took me a year to figure out where it was, you know? Like, it, it's mm-hmm. wow. it's so... If, if one of our goals is to make our testimonies accessible, mm. I think limiting ourselves to just one institution or, like, that kind of institution, I think, is, is kind of inherently problematic, right? Um, so, I don't, I don't really know where I was going with that, but, like...
2: It's things that you're pondering.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just, like, in, in hearing you guys speak, like, it's... I think it's something worth reconsidering. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and um, related to that, I'd like to ask. So, you mentioned about giving your subjects uh, options about what kind of access they wanted, or what kind of was it the copyright or that level well, of access? They, it,
3: both, right? So, the two first were c- two particular Creative Commons um, licenses, and then um, the last was more, I guess, the traditional oral history, like whatever regulate mm-hmm. you know limitations you, they would choose to mm-hmm. you know if they wanted to mm-hmm. wait ten years or whatever, they mm-hmm. could put any declare what is the language of it? Like, not processing it, but, you know, the, in any restrictions. There, that's the word that they would like. Yeah. Yeah,
0: so I'd like to ask what responsibilities each of you see yourselves having to your subjects, um, and also what are the risks that they're taking by participating in your oral history?
4: Um,
1: I, th- I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think, um, and, and I, I was speaking to this earlier, like, the wishes of my narrators is... Like I'll, with respect to the interview, like I'll abide by whatever they want to do with them. Mm -hmm. If if they regret something they say and they want it out, we're cutting it out, Um, bar none. Um, Because a core tenet of oral history practice, as far as like I was taught, it is it's a co-creative process. Mm -hmm. Like me and and the interviewee are both together making this interview, right? Um, So it's it's as much theirs as it is mine, if not more so theirs, right? So for me, I'm just kind of a device to kind of fulfill whatever they want to do with it uh, on some level. Um, that being said, they are trusting me to use these interviews, to form some sort of analysis, to, to speak to the dean, to kind of make Columbia a better place. So there is room for me to have some autonomy there. But um, I think that kind of pales in comparison to my responsibility to their comfort level with the process. Um, and I'm sorry, there, there was another part of that that question. Again.
0: Yeah, the second part was what are the risks that the subjects um, are taking?
1: Yeah, there are plenty. Um, these are, many of them want tenure, right? Like they, they have professors mm-hmm. who are their advisors who they have issues with that they might not feel comfortable, you know, expressing these feelings on the record because they might come back to bite them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we had one student in particular, this is not exactly relevant to that last point, but he, um, he basically admitted for the first time that he was HIV positive on, on record, right? Um, and that's something that he, going into the interview, that he wanted to do. Um, he wanted to take on that risk. Um, and this is something he hasn't really admitted to, like, family members, friends, things like that, but he, he almost wanted to make the point um, that this is who he is and he's at this institution. And it's, you know, you know despite the long way we've come with HIV research and, and you know, the, the, the idea of HIV in, in, in a public forum, like, there are very few students I can think of who, like, identify, like, publicly as HIV positive, right? Um, at the same time, not everybody is so prepared to, to take that on. And, and there are other interviewees we have who, in the moment, feel comfortable kind of expressing you know, something that could put them at risk. Um, and then later on, we'll be like, let me restrict this interview for 20 years or something like that, or let me just take that out altogether. Um, so there are plenty of risks. I think even volunteering, um, I think there's kind of a, an assumption you're making some sort of critique about the institution you're working for. And no matter what, you know, Columbia or a department might say about, you know, feel free to, you know, you have the freedom of speech to do whatever you want, I think there, there are inherent risks to doing that. Um, so we do the best we can to kind of accommodate that and, and mitigate those risks, but I think they're there all the same.
2: Um, I mean, for us, but, uh the Our Streets, Our Stories, it's usually Creative Commons licenses that we require people to sign. They basically have a choice whether or not you want to interview or you don't Um, And as far as us like for the collection like taking in um, material of course we do our standard deed of gift I give people three options I let them read it over beforehand um, sit with it make sure you're comfortable choose whichever one you like no pressure from me um, and you know they they get to make a decision about what it is that they want to do so I'm pretty much like you're you're in charge. <laughs> I'm just gonna be the one that keeps your stuff.
3: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for the portion of the interviews <laughs> that I did not as traditional oral histories, um, I have a more traditional um, documentary release form. Um, although I, as a as a creator, always try to work. Um, with the people I interview very closely and do my best to represent their intention of what they wanted to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to bring them back and like, you, you know, ha- have them experience the rough cut in the space if it's a walking mm-hmm. tour and give me feedback. And if they don't feel like I've represented them as they, they meant to be represented, you know, then I try to edit it. But then you get into some issues that if you then release something and somebody wants to, it's different than a Than an archive, you know, like I can't redact as easily something that's been digitally released into the world. So. That's one of the reasons you know that I, even though I have for the oral histories the option to, you know to release them digitally right away for most of them I haven't right away because of the questions of like well what if there are legal you know is there really you know I'm, I've been trying to think about like wh- what's the benefit of that versus the risk right And maybe waiting is wiser mm-hmm. um, and then and waiting and working with an arc with an institution and archive and thinking about doing that in a way that that even though you know if people chose that, I feel like, I don't want to be, you know, flippant about possible risks, right? And so I definitely wanted to wait until people went through court cases and stuff, so that mm-hmm. happened. But, um, you know, and then then I was distracted <laughs> for a long time. But this is one of the key questions, like why I haven't moved very fast on it. But I don't think also, I think that you don't have to move so quickly with this kind of material. The, the value of it, I think, grows over time in some ways. So I'm not super, I, I feel like it's much more important to make the right choices Um, slowly than to like rush in this cases so but so I think there's two sort of different things about in the way the two different collections that I have Um, but I but I think you know even in the oral history ones if they get released digitally for example um, with an open creative commons license then even if somebody wants to take something out of it I have no control Mm -hmm. so do you ever do like do, do you do anything with a Recordings be, is it
1: all oh, yeah, yeah.
3: text? So, so, what? how do you deal with that? So, there's a Sorry. website,
1: <laughs> ColumbiaLifeHistories.com. <cleanly> <laughs> yeah, there's a So, so, check so out. how do you
4: deal with that? In the
1: um, so, it's funny you mentioned that actually. Like, on our website right now, it's it's our first report. Um, recently, we just sent in our second report, and there's still kind of some work to do to like update that. Um, but after we, we published the website, one of our narrators, like, basically, we had these snippets um, of our interviews that kind of really distilled whatever point we were making, you know, as far as like, you know one of our sections was like race and silence um and the silences that you know certain narrators felt in class when either race would come up or they felt that their their race like was affecting their ability to participate in class things like that um so we had snippets for like all these subsections and after we published it we got an email from one of our our narrators after she heard the clip um and she's like i'm actually not cool with that like um so we took it down um and it it I think it, it, it hurt the, the presentation of the website, sure. Um, but we took it down. We, we did it mm-hmm. twice. Um, and you know we're in a position that we're able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Just given the, the project design, Like it, it was part of the process from the beginning. It's, it's an oral history project. There, there aren't these other considerations that I think you have to grapple with. Um, so for us, it, it's, it's not a painless process, but it's a simple process. Mm-hmm. Um, so. right. hmm.
4: Yeah, well, I'm interested in what you were saying about the, the responsibility to, like, d- do something with it. Because I feel like a lot of my narrators, like, they, they, they didn't expect me to, like, go to court for them or anything. Or, but they, they definitely knew I was working on, like, a project. And so that's constantly what I've been struggling with. I mean, like, I'm making a book out of the tran- uh, out of, like, selections of transcriptions. And just, like, how can I best represent these narrators Um, and like and I constantly when they can be reached like I'm calling them and reading them you know what I wrote and having getting their feedback which is like which has been really fun Um, but also I think (laughs) I think important Um, but so the responsibility I, I feel like that's a responsibility you know that I can't just in a strange way like I can't just have an archive of it like I have to do something more with it, um, which is strange, you know, talking about the archive, um, because like in a weird way, the archive is like by its nature like closed and exclusive, or like mm-hmm. inaccessible. <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I, I think and that. We sit in this lovely. <laughs> <room>. <laughs> yeah. No. I, but it is. It is. Um, <laughs> I think that's, there's like many different levels of that per archive. but um, And then in terms of the, um, the risks that I think the narrators are taking, I think, well, it's a small community. And I think that's part of the risk and also part of what excited a lot of the narrators. But it's definitely a risk. I mean, they talk about their neighbors, you know, mm. and that's on record. And I'm always really careful to be like, you know, it's online, and once it's on, if, if you want it to be online, it would be online. And, um, and I sort of, because I don't have an institution, because I don't have the kind of resources of Columbia, like I, I can't manage an archive forever. So you sort of have to, I have to be upfront about that. And it's a strange position to be in. Um, so they own all their interviews. I don't, but also because I'm not an institution, I don't have to own the interview. I don't even have to own the copyright. All I have is permission to use it. Um, so, which, like, almost no institution that I know of would allow. Um, and so, the also, I think one of the big risks is um, that they are, like, re-traumatized. Like, a lot of them have to tell, like, a hurricane story again. And um, that I'm really conscious of, I think. And I think that's all I can do because part of why they want to do the interview is also to tell the hurricane story again and in a different way than they've sort of been made to or that it's been represented to sort of set the record straight. It's something I hear a lot.
0: I think uh, now's a good time to ask for questions from the audience.
4: Can we have questions on the audio? <laughs> <laughs> right away, back to your,
0: uh, this idea of once you have this um, body of work, and
2: your idea now of putting out a book, personally, I'm in a situation where it's similar. And I'm wondering, are you going to compensate the community from the sale of the book? Mm-hmm. Because one of the things I've been hearing is this idea of like, we're giving, we're giving, mm-hmm. and then take, take, take. And
0: then nothing comes back back back
2: so i'm just wondering in this idea of what you could do how would you in the position that you're in right now possibly think of it what am i giving back
4: totally well i'm constantly thinking of like giving back like of course i do like the basic oral history giving back of like i give them the interview and they own the interview um but it is honestly, I never even thought of making money from this book, which is <laughs> probably a practical thing, but if I do, like i' will cross the vision I get to it. but I, I think it is it is something I always think about. It's like um it it's i've I've wanted like you know, I wanted like, oh, this big environmental movement is created. Which is not, which I would be like, wow, what do I give back? I mean, it, but like, I don't even necessarily. I don't even know if that would be a good thing. Like, I shouldn't be the one really creating the environmental movement. They're like, I guess my goal is sort of humbler. Like, if I create a conversation, you know. Um, but it is something I, I I constantly think about the the giving back or what 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 they the narrators get out of the interview um, and I think it varies from narrator to narrator which is why it's so hard to say um, because a, like a lot of my narrators um, like a lot of the time in oral history I think like I go in as oral historian and sometimes the narrator comes in as like it's therapy or something like that like I feel like th- that often happens and so, I mean, it's hard to deal with that. Like, I'm not trained in any way for that, really. Um, so I, I guess I'm sort of open to them taking what they can, <laughs> as opposed to explicitly giving back, because it is hard to know what I would give back. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um. No well, if you were making a point, I didn't want to cut you off. Um, this isn't to say that it would constitute giving back, but something that we did periodically we would have basically these workshops where we would um, there were kind of workshops slash presentations we would present our project in progress um, it was open to the public and they were pretty well attended and and some of our narrators would come and and we would present you know certain testimonies and like you know some people felt really honored by that they felt you know important, they felt like um, like their story mattered, right? And, and it, it's a small thing, but I think even doing just a little presentation or holding an event to gather all of your narrators and, and kind of share these testimonies that people are comfortable sharing, obviously, um, is a small way of like, still continuing the relationship post-interview one, um, and still soliciting their feedback and, and their contributions, um, but also making your project better. Um, mm-hmm. Just because people often have thoughts after an interview, um, mm-hmm. they're like, "Oh, I forgot to mention this," or "I forgot to mention this," or "I wish you had asked me that," um, or "I kind of want to change my answer a little bit now that I've thought about it a little more." Mm-hmm. Um, so, so continuing that relationship is is just another benefit of, of doing little things like that.
3: I mean, I would say all of the work that I've done that's community-based, that's like my own work, not client, not for a client. I, I have made free and open to the public and also tried to make it very accessible so even though I work in new media and mobile media I will really work to figure out ways for anyone to access it um, who wants to um, so f- like for example I I did a piece in downtown Brooklyn and it was experienced on uh, mobile devices and down through downloads but I also um, you know left uh, cd players at like barbershops and bookshops and stuff so people could just pick them up and go and take them and then I and, and also had other ways for people to access it, to to make it accessible so I think that that is really important and but it's also you know I mean it's not like even if you give a thing away for free you don't get anything from it because I get professional you know I get tenure you know like, and things like that right so there I mean you're still profiting in some ways but it's um But I think that that, to me it's really important that things are are accessible, especially if they're being extracted from a community that they're giving that they're available to the community um, without, you know, with as few limits as possible.
0: Any other questions?
1: Kind of a logistics one, but how did each of you solicit your narrators? Oh God, that was such a mess. Um, We did a little bit of everything. We um, emailed, I mean, ours, it's very specific to kind of the institution, so I'm not sure how, like, you know, applicable it'll be to to whatever project you might be working on. But we emailed basically every department head at the university. Um, We did some flyering, not not as much as probably we should have. Um, And we also just had friends of friends. Word of mouth was actually a big thing. People don't know about oral history, so, like, you know, somebody who does answer the, the email and does an interview will tell their friends and and will just be like, this was like kind of a crazy experience for me. Like I've never had to like tell my story before. Like telling your, your biography is actually like kind of a crazy process if you've never done it before. Like you've never had to structure your life story. The act of doing that kind of breeds new insights to your own personal history that you might have never thought of before. Um so oral history is cool. So like that, that also just kind of helped uh, our project. Um, that being said, I, I, I do wonder about the pool of narrative, narrators we got, just because like we didn't, you know, check every box as far as recruitment, right? Like what narrators didn't answer our call. When we did our first wave of, of interviews, um, we got many narrators of color, but very few black narrators. Um, so Benji and I were thinking kind of deeply about like. Our messaging, like what, how, how did we frame this project? Like, why is it that people didn't answer us? You know, like, you know, just just speaking from personal experience, it's kind of an institutional mistrust. And when you see it's a Columbia Life Histories project, you might, you know, you might just think this is BS. Like, I don't want, even want to be a part of it, right? Um, so these are questions we we really haven't developed great answers to, but um, but yeah, like it, it's um, it was kind of a mishmash of a lot of things. Um,
2: Well, BPL has a network of 60 branches, so (laughs) (laughs) we're, like, you know, on the ground with the community, so it's just a matter of getting them to know that this is something that we we do and people come in.
3: I mean I was just uh, on the a lot of hours and observing and talking to people but also um within the working group oral history we we reached out to the key working groups through their working group emails and asked them to try to think carefully about representation and who you know people not just throw us the f- the you know first person and a lot of times like everyone would be like you got to talk to this person and I'd be like who else (laughs) should I talk to in that working group you know because like 10 people would recommend the one person you know who is often to step up um and usually you, you know, often a man and often white, and um <laughs> and then I would like be like, well, who else is on the ground? who else is working? like who else is doing stuff? And so you know, just to ask those questions and try to like ha- but also you know some so, uh, w- trusting the working groups to think about you know and and I think a lot of th- those conversations were happening, so um so, so it was a combination of those of t- those things, and then also just was available <laughs> at the time that I had when I had a little kid and I had like these many hours in the day mm-hmm. so.
4: <coughs> well I think I have a strange case because I was like in the community before I started the oil history mm-hmm. project working on this farming thing and and so but I, I did try I mean I hung posters in, in the in the Mockingbird Cafe if you're ever in Bay St. Louis that's the place to be and um, um, and we would have these story circles at the sites there um so it was mostly i just would string people i knew to people i knew and and it's a small community but also then when i wanted like in diamond head which is where the factory is which is on the north side of the bay like i didn't know anybody there but i knew it was really important because the factory is there and people kept talking about it as like, oh, Diamond Head, like, that's crazy. Like, I live in Bay St. Louis. And I know I live, but if you live in Diamond Head, you really... So, I mean, I went door to door, and I knocked on people's door who live near the factory. And, um, but I don't know if that's possible everywhere. That's possible as, like, I mean, as, like, a tall white guy in southern Mississippi where everybody has, like, the southern hospitality, which everything that entails, I can do that. I can knock on people's door. And, w- and one guy said, like, are you crazy knocking people's door? You know, everybody's armed on this block. And I'm like, no, I'm mm-hmm. not. I mean, I guess I didn't answer him. <laughs> 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 I don't have an answer for that. Um, but, um, but it's also interesting thinking about what's inherent in oral history. Like, who's not going to sit down for a two-hour interview? And so I interviewed a lot of people that, I, that, you know, they never signed a release form. I recorded them. I asked them verbally, like, do you mind, like, can I use transcriptions of what you said? Because, like, younger people, for some reason, I mean, for a lot of reasons, didn't want to sit down. They're like, I don't know. I don't have any time. So you don't want it to be, like, the oil history cliches, like, you don't want it to just be the friendly and the lonely. <laughs> like who or which oral history preys on you wanna you want have like a fuller young, mean ones. yeah, a fuller <laughs> spectrum I- if that's possible. Um, so that something yeah, I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um,
4: this is kind of an open-ended question, but I'm wondering how. It's sort of how this experience, um, maybe how you experienced it. I've never listened to seventy people's life histories, um, and maybe even Mario, if it like how it changed, maybe how you thought of your own personal history, or I mean, goes for anyone. Um, Just wondering about like your experience actually doing the
1: work and kind of like looking back. Yeah, I mean, it, it was at times you know exhilarating, at other times exhausting. It's you know listening is an active exercise right like it's work um and i mean just speaking from from my personal experience i i you know i'm an immigrant to the u.s i grew up low income i i had certain chips on my shoulder i guess like getting into columbia and, and working that out for myself and i think i had very easily dismissed other people um when i was a younger man right um and I and I think even though like by the by the time I did these interviews I, I was a little older and a little wiser right like I think listening to all of these testimonies has a way of humbling you um, just by virtue of just listening to them right like everybody has some sort of struggle at some point point. Um, and I, I can't think of one interview where I wasn't kind of either taken aback or surprised by like the path that they took to get to the point of, of the interview right um, so yeah i mean it's it's rare that you have those conversations with people and to have you know dozens of them is is kind of a huge privilege um, so so yeah I, I don't know that I have more more insight than that but but yeah it's 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 been a really good experience
4: well, I mean, I do consider the narrators like really generous, I guess that's like the word because um it is it's it's. you know just to tell your life story it's like an, as I think you were touching on like it's an incredibly generous thing to do and I also think that well and then of course there's the other side which is like you know as an interviewer I never knew what I was going into you know someone could talk about um, like it could be like it could go to a trauma narrative so quickly and And or it could like this one guy who was the baker actually just died. And that's another way of giving back. I like sent they're going to play some of his oral history at his memorial. Um, But he just wanted to talk about bread. And I was like, you know, what? talk about bread for 50 minutes. Like, that's amazing. That's why you live here, because bread rises differently below sea level. Like, wow. Like, that's like um, so. And then there's the, like, you know, it's exhausting because there's so many things that I think oral historians do to, like, try to be quiet or or to have a a very different way of listening that's very bodily because you don't want to go, uh-huh, uh-huh or because you don't want to and so, like, I would, like, my back would kill me, you know, like, some days I'd just be, like, um, you know, it really takes a physical toll, but it's not a complaint. (laughs) Yeah,
3: it's I, I find it so exhausting. I mean, it's so intimate, and it's just like such an intense t- experience to be talking to somebody for that long, and t- t- to be trying to, you know, g- guide them and f- help facilitate that the the best kind of. I don't know, document or you know that they can that, that that can be produced from that relationship it's 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 exhausting and I'm kind of an introvert and I, I like I just it it's I find it very overwhelming sometimes to be like in that but but it's also really moving and I mean there's so many times I'm, like crying in the middle of <laughs> conducting a very uh, not objective at all um but um that is not the goal but um yeah so i I think it's you know it it. It, it, they're they're really giving you something and you and to be there and to be with it, 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 it it's a, it's an important process but it's it is taxing in some ways too you know?
0: You've been listening to audio interference produced by interference archive. To learn more about this podcast and other programs at Interference Archive, visit us at www.interferencearchive.org.